Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Stockwell service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. 12th century AD, young aristocrat by the name of Francis Bernardone had two experiences that totally changed his life. The first, he is dressed in army, comes from a wealthy aristocratic background. He's off to war uh, against neighbouring Perugia in Umbria, Italy, and he passes a leper. Now, he has always felt particularly uncomfortable around lepers, and as an aristocrat, he's never had anything to do with them, and as he passes this man, he very deliberately looks the other way. Uh, You may know the awkwardness of that sort of experience. As he passes the leper, he knows deep in his heart that he has done the wrong thing, that he needs to turn his horse around, that he needs to go back to the leper, and that he needs to embrace that individual as if he were Christ himself. And Francis does this, and he says it's a very profound experience for him, and one that leaves this indelible conviction that he should be spending the rest of his life not taking over the family, business and estates, but devoting his life to the poor. The second experience is some uh, sometime later, he comes across a broken down church. And as he's looking at the ruins, he feels or hears the spirit of God whispering into his heart, rebuild my church. It was from those two experiences that Francis started a movement which was known for its simplicity, the extra, its extravagant generosity, and its profound sense of joy. In fact, he would rebuke other clergymen who became part of this movement if they gave things away and then looked glum. Uh, it was to be a movement of great happiness. It was actually a movement that ended up inspiring millions and millions of people around the world, not just in the 12th century, but even to today, And, of course, Francis also created a monastic order, the Franciscans. His name was Francis Assisi. Now, as Jackie said earlier, we've been talking these last few weeks about spiritual awakening. And one of the really interesting things about spiritual awakenings is that when you look at them and look at what happens, there is always a sense of extravagant generosity at the heart of them. It's one of the characteristics when lots of people's spiritual lives are awakened and changes in the community as a whole. Radical generosity is always part of it. Now today we are starting a new series, again as Lou said, on generosity. Just a short series leading to our gift day, which we're having on March the 17th, where we're praying for £200,000 across our five services, which of course is a huge amount of, uh, a huge amount of money. And uh, I just want to say, let me say a couple of things about that at the, out, at the outset. The first is that many of us are trusting that God will awaken not only us, but his church, his people, and this city again spiritually at this time. Last Sunday was actually the first time that we'd ever done six services across Christchurch London, because we had our first time where we had a service in the east in the mornings. And I pinched myself. I remember leaving, leaving my home last Sunday, and as I was sort of walking towards the bus stop, pinching myself and thinking, wow, what a privilege to be part of five developed, a sixth emerging community right across this city that get to serve their communities and follow Jesus. 
And uh, we are trusting God that, that much, much more will come from this, that some really wonderful things, some really special things will come as a result. If that's to happen, radical generosity will be at the heart of the whole thing. And the second thing to say, particularly for those of you that are visitors here, is that we rarely talk here about money. I think we've done three sermons in, a, in the last 18 months on the question of finances and generosity. Uh, and uh, so if you're here for the first time today and you're thinking, ah, oh, it's one of those churches that always talks about money. No, you just happen to have come when we did. But actually, we talk about money a lot less than Jesus talks about it in the New Testament, which is maybe something we need to reflect on. I don't know. Uh, but it is an occasional thing because we understand all the complexities about churches talking about money. You don't need me to run into all of that, but we understand that is a complicated thing. And uh, so just to acknowledge up front, we don't do this often, but it's an important part. As I'm going to talk about today, it's an important part of our lives together. And so we do want to address it. Uh, I want to continue with a personal story, which some of you will be aware of, um, be new to others of you. Next slide, please. And next slide again. This was one of my birthday presents on my seventh birthday. My father gave me a box precisely like this. This one's actually off Google Images, but it's pretty much identical to the one that I was given. And with it, he said, David, he said, I think you are now old enough at the grand age of seven to start getting pocket money. Now, uh, the uh, grand sum that I was given at that time was 10 pence. It's a wonderful illustration of the power of inflation. Uh, but he gave me that 10 pence, not as a 10 pence bit, but broken down into smaller uh, numbers. And I remember very clearly he put the 10 pence on the side, uh, maybe five twos and ones. And the first 1p he gave me, he said, now, he said, this is to go into your giving. And he'd actually changed the, it wasn't rent, coal, electricity and papers on the top. The first one, I can even remember where they were. The first one was giving. And he gave me 1p and he said, now that is to be giving because he said something to the effect, if you're going to follow Jesus, you give, you always give and you give first to his work. So I'm watching. I'm firstly excited to be getting 10 pence and then a watch. You know, there's one pence go into there and, uh, and then another penny into savings and a little bit into presents. And then I remember I got the rest for sweets which is all very exciting. I have to confess, well, I do confess to you that I did find after a while too that if you picked the, picked the box up and shook it and turned it, then you could rearrange some of the... Um, so I'm now confessing my sin to you as well. But it was actually, uh, though I joke, it was a profound experience. It was a light... It was, I, I mean, I didn't think it was, but looking back, it was a life-changing experience because the truth is that ever since then, apart from the odd-shaking Ever since then, that has been my, and since we've been married, our habit. To give at least 10% of whatever we've earned, whatever our income has been, to God's work. In good times, we've been able to give more. But we've always been able, and we've always done that, we've always given at least 10%. Now, my father didn't, uh, didn't give me a long lecture on all the reasons why this was good, but looking back, there were a whole load of reasons why I'm very grateful that I started that habit when I did. And I just want to share a few of them uh, with you as we get going. And the first was that generosity has, kept, has helped keep my heart healthy. 
uh, in 21st century life, we're all very conscious of keeping our bodies healthy. More people go to the gym now. I suspect more people in this congregation go to the gym than in any previous generation. We're focused on keeping our bodies in good shape. You're aware of what you eat. We've even heard of someone giving up sugar for Lent. And that's sort of very acceptable and sort of almost cool thing to do. We even talk now about sleep and the importance of getting enough sleep. Now, all of that is good. In fact, the Bible says, you know, all of that is of some good. But if we want to keep our hearts, and by which I'm not meaning now the physical organ, but I'm talking about your inner motives, thoughts, the things that drive you, actually that lead you to live in the way that you do. If you're to keep your heart healthy, and as Solomon says, above all else, he says, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. If we're to keep our hearts healthy, then our giving, our generosity, has to be part of that. You can't have a healthy heart without it. So I sometimes think that when I'm giving, it's the equivalent of lifting weights. You know, when you lift weights, after a while, anybody can tell. They don't know to start with, you're just doing it in secret, but you become stronger. Now, just like everyone else in this room who from time to time has given money and other things away, I've experienced the pain of that. I too have gone online deciding how much I'm going to transfer and then my finger has hovered before I've hit send. I've sent and it's, you know, it's hurt at some sort of emotional, physical level. It hurts as you send it. But what I've found is that the more you do it, the easier it becomes. And I think, and the people around me tell me, I'm in better shape as a result. So I'm glad I started young, because it's been good for me and it's been good for my heart. I've also found that generosity allows God to work in other areas of my life as well. Money's a weird thing. It's a it's an unusually powerful thing. You shift your attitude to money and you find you shift your attitude to other things at the same time. I don't, I don't know that I can quite find the rationale for that, but there are probably some other things. I suspect sex is like that. It may be power is like that, I don't know. But I know that money is. Billy Graham, the evangelist who I think has preached to more people on earth than anybody else, he said this, he said, if a person gets his attitude towards money straight, it will help them straighten out almost every other area of their lives. And one older Christian said, as I reflect on my growth as a Christian across the years, the second most important gift of grace I've received has been the discipline of tithing. The first was to surrender my will to Jesus Christ. He went on to say about him and his wife, the Lord got our hearts when we began to tithe. Interesting. There's a connection between the health of our lives more generally and our attitude to money. So generosity has helped keep my life heart healthy, but it's helped me grow spiritually in lots of other areas as well. It's also, generosity has also caused me to live by faith. And I think the Christian life is meant to be one where we live by faith. Paul says we don't don't live by sight, 
by which I think he means just by the rationale or the logic. In our financial lives, I think he's saying we don't just live by the bank balance or the forecast, if you use financial software, you know, the sort of fork tells you how it's going to be in three months or three years' time. Um, <laughs> I found they're never quite as good as they tell you, but anyway... Paul says that we're not just to live that way, but we're to live by faith. Now, when we're following God and seeking to live a life of generosity, we sometimes find that we give away more than we think we can afford. Now, when we do that, immediately our lives become lives of faith. Now, that lives of faith is not just meant to be for the super Christian, for the full-time Christian. The very com- That's actually an invitation and an adventure for us all. I remember reading the, the gospel story, Jesus feeding 5,000 people and his disciples come to him and they say, send them away or they'll get hungry. And he turns to them and he says, you give them something to eat. Now, he knows that they didn't have the natural resource to do that. He's not playing games with them. He's actually saying to them, you, what's the way of feeding these people which goes beyond your natural resources? And of course, none of, they're, they're like, we haven't got anything. And then, you know, little boy comes up and he gives his five loaves and two fishes. Now, the minute he gives those to Jesus, the boy has a problem. He has nothing to eat. But in the giving of those, of course, Jesus then multiplies them so that not only 5,000 men, more women and children eat, but the little boy gets fed as well. That is the life of faith. The first time that I was ever given a six-figure gift for for the work of God that I was involved with, was when we moved here to start Christchurch London. Someone I'd never met, many of you know the story, gave me a cheque for £100,000. He said, I think that will help you. And he was right. Now, that was before we got here, but it was after I had, we had decided and announced that we were leaving a really great church. We were leaving a, a wonderful community of friends. We were leaving a city where we'd had great schooling for our children, At least one of our kids did not want to go at all. In other words, we were saying goodbye to lots that was good and we were coming to absolutely nothing here. We knew Tim and Jackie were coming. We didn't know many others were coming at that point in time. But in that position of having left something behind, we'd given our five loaves and two fishes, but we had nothing, somebody wrote me a cheque for £100,000. Now, you might say, I've never had that sort of experience. Well, my question is, when did you last put yourself in a place where you might need that sort of experience? Now, of course, that's not something we just do willy-nilly, or, you know, I'll throw myself off a cliff, see if someone catches me. This is something we do in tandem with God and his purposes, listening to his voice, getting counsel from others. One of my best friends lives in London. He told me, don't do this, David. It is impossible. And so God invites us into the inexplicable life, the life lived by faith. Now, for many of us, I'm not suggesting that we, you know, it may not be that we're to embark on big things right now, but maybe a really big thing is starting to settle just this issue of our regular generosity. Our experience has been 
We have given on many, many occasions, prompted by the Spirit, our experience has been he has always provided for us, often in unexpected ways. Unexpected gifts, tax rebates, salary increases or reductions in necessary expenditure and on occasion, no finance at all but grace to be able to live without for a while. Both are miracles. Sometimes he gives, he always gives. Sometimes he gives physically, tangibly. Other times he gives us grace to continue regardless. I want to invite you this morning into that life of faith, which is a life for all of us to live. Generosity has also enabled me to invest in what really matters. We only ever get to spend our money once. And when you die, you leave it all behind. Cheesy little story, but I'm going to tell it to you anyway, which just illustrates this, was of a wealthy heiress uh, who had died, and at her funeral, somebody came up to her financial advisor and said, so, how much did she leave behind? The financial advisor just looked and said, oh, everything. She left everything behind. And that's how it is. So we can only spend it this side of the grave. So I want to invest my money in things that really matter. Don't you? We look, you know, we often hear the talk of at our deathbed, nobody's going to say, I wish I'd spent more time in the office. We want to have spent more time with people. Well, at our deathbed, when we look back over our financial expenditure, then how have we invested it? How have we invested it? For me, following Jesus and the life of the church are of inestimable value. I'm coming here on the tube this morning and I'm reminding myself, I get to preach not just to people but I get to church to the I get to preach to the church of God which is the hope of the world I want to invest my time and my money there I want to invite you to do the same it's good for our hearts it enables us to work in other areas of our life God to work in other areas of our life it causes us to live the life of faith and it enables us to invest in what really matters one other thing about generosity. And one other reason I'm grateful that my father taught me as he did is that generosity helps get God's mission accomplished. As I said, we've something very exciting going on here amongst us that I think God is doing. I love to hear stories from other services. I love to hear, I don't know when Andy Tilsley was last here, whether he told you the story of the woman who came for the first time and brought two children, very serious allergies, and they had no friends at school, most importantly. For whatever reason, they had no friends. He said, uh, he said to us as a staff the following Tuesday, and he says it with tears rolling down his face, he said the children of Christchurch London Sutton played a blinder. Because he said they just put their hands out, arms out, and they said, come and play. And as so often is the case, it's the children who show the grown-ups how to follow Jesus. I love hearing stories like that. And he said, you know, he said the, the parent who came, he said, uh, came thirsty for God. Wept through the worship, wept through the preaching, and wanted to pray at the end of the service. I loved the email that I got from a friend of mine who's been coming to church recently. Uh, from, a, from another faith background. And uh, because I sat on the front row, you know, it's a real... <laughs> downer for friends of mine who come to church with me because if the, you know I sort of hope they'll sit with me and so I bring them to the front row 
So the other Sunday, central service, we call everyone forward for prayer at the end. So my friend gets caught up in the prayer, not because he's come forward, but he's just on the front row, so he gets prayed for anyway. (laughs) He emails me, and then we go out for lunch, and we talk about, because he's just got a Bible, we talk about the value of reading the Bible every day, and how do you do it, and where do you start, and why do you pray, and how do you pray? And So we have this, you know, over a pret sandwich. And then he emails me later in the day. He says, I will not forget the prayer or the conversation this morning for a very long time. And you just think, okay, I'm busy for the next 25 years. I'm doing that. You know, I go to Alpha the other week with my friend. So we sit down and there's a lady opposite and it's her first Sunday and she's dead nervous. Uh, Not her first Sunday, her first Alpha midweek thing. And she's just dead nervous, like you are when you go to something for the first time. So she says, hello, she says... uh, so are you a Christian, she says to me. I say, yes, I'm a Christian. And she turns to my friend and she looks at him and she says, are you a Christian? And he hesitates for a minute. And then he says, yes, he says, I'm a Christian. And then he laughs. He says, that is the first time I've ever said that. And again, it's just like this wonderful moment. And I get home that evening and Philippa says, how's your evening been? I'm like, I've had the best evening ever. Because I've talked with people who are genuinely searching for faith all evening, answering questions. Any one of us loves that when we get it. I'm excited about the start of a morning service in the East. One of the mothers who's been waiting. So there's, you know, we started an evening service. Then people start getting married. Then they have babies. You know, you are familiar with this process here. And then people say, we can't come to church at five o'clock in the evening. That's a rubbish time to come to church. So can we start a morning service? So one of the couples who like the first half have been hanging on for quite some time. Again, some of you understand this. So Joel says to me, one mother comes into church last Sunday morning in the East, goes into the children's area. T-shirt, you know, there's T-shirted people and there's toys on the floor. And she just looks at it and she starts crying. She's so grateful that we get to start something which her family can be involved with. There are so many other things I could talk I love to see the growth in leaders. One of the reasons I love coming here is because I see the work of God in people's lives. See the growth. So I'm like, this is a good gig. This is exactly what we want to be doing. This is our mission together. And so I know £200,000, especially if you can do it, it's like, whoa, that's a huge amount. Well, actually, it is a lot of money, and I don't want to become self-confident you know, about this, but it's the smallest amount we've ever asked for when we've done one of these. And God has always been very good to us. And, you know, as I was talking with someone actually in this congregation a while ago, and they said, David, just to get this right, are you telling me we're going for an offering in March and is it for £200,000? I said, yes. They said, oh, that's fantastic. They said, offerings have always been so good for us. So good for us as a church and so good for us as individuals. Well, I loved the response. Oh, fantastic. It's not... You understand what I'm saying. But it's a, it's a good point. So... I'm taking far too long over this and we're going to have to speed up. What does the Bible say about generosity? Well, the first time generosity is mentioned in the Bible is actually in Genesis. This is before we get to the law. People sometimes say, giving 10%, well, that's in the law, isn't it? Well, it is, but it's not just in the law. Actually, the first uh, example of it is when Abraham has been blessed. He's won a battle 
And so he gives 10% to Melchizedek, the priest of God Most High. And he gives 10% of the spoils to him. It seems like God's blessed me, so I want to give. Then Jacob, wily old Jacob, he sort of tries to do a deal with God. He's like, if you bless me, I'll give you 10%. And God, in his goodness and his graciousness, just seems to say, let's go with that. I'm going to bless you anyway, so you'll keep your part of the bargain. So those are the early references in Genesis. But one of the things that's interesting is this proportion, 10%, keeps coming up. Once we get to the law that Moses lays down for the way that the people of God are to conduct themselves, 10% comes up again. Here's what it says in Leviticus 27, verse 30. A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It's holy to the Lord. There's a couple of interesting things here. A tithe of everything. It's sort of however you get your income. You know, salary, inheritance, bonus, windfall, whatever it is, everything, a tithe of everything from the land belongs to the Lord. Now, actually, what comes behind this, the idea behind this, is that everything is God's. It says in Deuteronomy, we've not got time to look at it now, but it says in Deuteronomy that God gives us the ability to make wealth. So I know it's easy to say, no, 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 I've worked really hard. If you knew how many hours I've worked last year for the money that I've got, I really worked and I got a bonus or whatever it is, you're like, that's me. Well, actually, it is you, but it's also behind you. It's God giving grace and ability for all of that. So actually, it's all the Lord's. And giving of 10% is like symbolic of that by giving some back to God and his work. And actually, and we haven't got time to go into this, sometimes people say, yeah, but that included the running of the nation. Well, I'm really happy to talk about that, or, or I'm sure Liam will as well, but it's, or Tim, or... <laughs> um, but actually, there's, there's two lots of 10, and there's, a, there's about 23% that the Israelites are asked to give every year. So when Malachi uses such language as when you're not giving, you're robbing God, it is strong language, but it is accurate language too. Will a mere mortal rob God? But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings, says Malachi. So if that's the Old Testament, how about the New Testament? In the New Testament, Jesus seems to assume. He doesn't cancel tithing. He says when he's talking to the Pharisees, when you tithe. And he says, when you tithe, your heart is all wrong and your heart really matters. So, okay, the heart matters. But he doesn't say cancel tithing. He seems to assume it. But then, of course, Jesus came to fulfill the law, to complete it. So what does that mean? It means that in every area, Jesus took godliness to a higher level. Where before the law says, if you kill someone, it's wrong. Now, if you hate someone in your heart. Where before the law said, if you sleep with another man's wife. But now, if you imagine yourself sleeping with another man's wife, it is wrong. So for money, if 10% was... The, what was recommended or what was commanded and I want to suggest if Jesus is fulfilling the law then that remains a meaningful guide but it's not a limit to what we should give so how should we respond to all this and I realise I'm touching on huge issues and I can tell just by the silence in the room I'm touching on huge issues in, in a short amount of time 
let me just suggest two ways in which we should respond. And actually, initially, I thought I was just going to respond, uh, preach just these two things, but I realized a lot more things needed to be said. The first thing is we need to take responsibility. We need to take responsibility. When Paul writes to the Galatians, there's two things he says in Galatians 6. And the first couple of verses, not about money, but it can be applied there. The first thing he says is take responsibility. Then he says, bear one another's burdens. And like, which Paul? And can it really be both? I think it can be. Take responsibility. What, what does it mean to take responsibility? A friend of mine's pastor of a church, which is literally a church on the top of an incline, like a church on a hill, got lots of lights in it, so when the lights are on and it's dark, it literally shines. And there was one Sunday evening where at about midnight, he was just about to go to bed, realised he needed a book in the morning, early in the morning, which was at the church. And given he just lived round the corner, he thought, I'll pop and get it now. See, he... Does the, does the walk, and he gets around the corner, sees the church, all the lights on. It's like midnight. Who is still in the church now? He gets to the church, and he opens, he goes to the door, and it, it, it's open. And he goes in, and he looks all around the whole building, which is a bit of a labyrinth. And there's nobody there at all. The building is empty, the door is open, and all the lights are on. And he said to me the next day, he said, it's a, he, said to, he said it was a picture of the fact no one was taking responsibility. No one asked, is it my job to make this place secure? Everyone said, got to be someone else's job. As a result, the church was left vulnerable. To take responsibility is to say, this is mine and let me play my role. This is ours and it's yours. And what does it mean to take our responsibility? Well, it means that you are to give according to how God leads you. But you are to give. It's not an amount. The Bible's clear on that. It's about the heart and then a proportion. So actually, those of us that have more should give more than those that don't. And if we start to think about 10% or moving towards that, if maybe you're a long way from that right now. Then we're saying, well, I give a bigger proportion, but actually it's often harder on a small income to give 10% than it is on a larger income. But I want to encourage each of us, take responsibility. We're about something wonderful here that is really changing individuals' lives and has the potential to change communities' lives. But it requires, at the beginning at the heart of any potential awakening it requires prayer and it requires radical generosity and the other thing Paul says in Galatians is that we're to carry one another's burdens in other words the Christian life is one of love and supporting the weak so it, it means that those of us that are wealthier that are richer that have more income now actually in global terms I think everyone in this room is rich Paul, when he writes to Timothy, he says, command the rich to do good, to be rich in good actions, and to be generous. And so if Paul were here today, he would command those of us on bigger incomes, be generous, bear the load for others, not just physically or emotionally, but financially as well. Let me come into land with this. C.T. Studd was an aristocrat. 
this time a 19th century English aristocrat and an English cr cricketer of the late 1880s. He led a remarkable life and he spent most of it in China, then in India and then in Africa. And each place that he went to, you can trace back a spiritual awakening. In each of those three countries or continents, there was a remarkable spiritual awakening as a result, at least partially, of his ministry. At the heart of this, though, was a decision that he made when he was 25. He was in China already by then, but he came into his inheritance, the equivalent of £2 million today. And he decided he would give it all away. He decided for him that he would live better, closer, and more effective without it. Except for £3,500 that he saved as a wedding gift for his bride. On the wedding day, he gave that money to Priscilla Livingston Stewart, who took it from him and said, I think we're better clear of this, and she gave it all away. Now, I don't say this to suggest that we all give away all of our inheritances. I say it to say at the heart of every spiritual awakening is radical generosity. And my encouragement as we prepare our hearts over these next three weeks for an offering on the 17th of March, and we'll have another opportunity on the 24th, understand there's no one Sunday when we're all here. My encouragement as we prepare our hearts is to be asking God, how do I respond to your word? And what is your spirit saying to me?